0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org.
1: Okay, let's make a start. Um, Uh (laughs) So we're still expecting a few more people to join us, but uh, so if people wander in, just don't worry about them, or just tut at them, whichever you'd like. Make them feel awful. Oh, um. <laughs> no, you made it just in time. You're all right. Um, uh, do feel free to grab drinks as well if you've not done that. Um, uh, my name is Liam. Uh, I hope that today is going to be fun. Um, I'm going to be talking for a lot of today, so sorry if you don't like the sound of my voice or the look of my face or anything like that, Um, uh, but we're going to be looking at the theme of how to read the Bible, and I want today to be interactive really, so I've got quite a lot to teach, so I could talk non-stop for hours, um, or you could try and stop that by interrupting me with questions from time to time we'll have some group work and we'll have some times where i'll particularly stop and say any questions but do feel free to fire out questions at any point throughout the day one of the weird things about days like this is i never quite know where to pitch it so sometimes i think um oh is this going to be too simple and some people find it too hard and other people are like man that's too simple you're just telling us stuff we already knew so like give me feedback um throughout the day if you i mean just glare at me if it's not working for you or or do ask questions and feel free to ask questions through the day I think that's the way we're going to get the most out of the time. Um, if I feel like the question is going to be answered somewhere else, or I know we're short for time, or I just don't like the question, I'll find a way of avoiding it. That's fine. Um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I have a degree in philosophy and a master's in theology, so I know lots of big words, and I can just dazzle you with big words, make you think I've answered your question. and Really, I haven't. I've dodged it. So I'm okay with that. Um, do ask questions. And uh, we all have some group work, and we'll have some time uh, just for discussion and um, to work through things as individuals and also in tables so I hope you've picked a good table uh, and if you find you haven't feel free to shift during this break <laughs> um, but so we're going to think Trevor's going for a table by himself well that's a man confident in his own abilities that's that's good um, so uh, on a day like today when we're thinking about how to read the Bible. Um, There's so much that we could cover Because the Bible is a complex book, it's a big book um, So many of us come with very different questions uh, And so we're clearly not going to be able to cover everything about the day So just to give you an idea of what we are and aren't going to cover um, I'm not going to cover things today That generally often come under the the, uh, sort of category of the doctrine of scripture. So things like, what is the Bible? How was it put together? How do we know that it's trustworthy? Uh, Inerrancy, infallibility, if you know any of those big words. We're not going to cover any of that today. Those are important questions, but we just get bogged down and then maybe we'll cover them another day if they're of particular interest to you. Uh, We're also not going to get to cover um, all the different genres of the Bible. I'd hope that was something we'd do, but I realise I've bitten off way more than we could chew. Um, So we won't cover that in much depth, um, but do feel free to ask questions um, as we go. We're also not going to talk too much about Um, how to read the Bible devotionally and prayer and the role of the Holy Spirit, which are obviously very important things. But I'm sort of assuming that that when we read the Bible, we do so because we want to know more about God and we may pray at the same time, we may reflect on scripture and listen to the whispers of the Holy Spirit. But I'm not going to talk too much about that. But again, if you have questions, do say. Uh, But essentially what I want to do today is give us um, what we've called an interpretive journey. So a journey of steps that we can take when reading the Bible that will help us to understand it. There are essentially four, four and a half principles that I'm going to pad out throughout the day, that if you apply them to scripture, it won't suddenly make it really easy, but it it does provide a framework from which we can read any text of scripture and hopefully get to some meaning not only understanding what it meant then but how it applies to us today so we're going to go through that journey today some of it will feel a bit more academic than normal I think it will certainly feel a bit more academic than your normal sort of devotional or quiet time but I hope it will be helpful um, for giving you tools that means you can go away and you can read some really difficult passages and apply these principles and hopefully get some answers from them. But uh, I asked you a moment ago, if you were done with small talk and you are bored of the people on your table, uh, just to talk about this question. What do you find difficult about reading the Bible? Uh, anyone fancy sharing a few thoughts? What do you find challenging about reading the Bible?
0: I think there is, there, there'll be some passages where you feel like, is the English doing this you know, passage mm. um, justice?
1: Oh, do you read it in English, not in Hebrew and Greek? <laughs> <laughs> you're on the wrong day, man. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: okay, so, for example, um, there's an argument between certain churches about, you know, baptism. So, mm. is it baptism for the forgiveness of sins, <laughs> i.e., you know, you, get back, you know, after repentance and baptism, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you're forgiven and you receive the Holy Spirit? Mm. Or is it in light of, you know... Your, the forgiveness of your sins. Sure. Be, I, I, and that's where, you know, I sometimes I think, you know, I'm reading this in English, but like, is this the proper mm. um, yeah. translation, really?
1: Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, no, I'm not going to answer everyone who questions now, actually, but that's a very important question. Um, and do others feel that as well? Or do you sometimes look at it and think, oh, man, is this that yeah, okay. Great. Maybe we'll come back to that then. Mm. Other, other things that people find challenging? Yeah.
0: I go through the Bible a day. And um, the bits of the New Testament are in the Paul's
1: letters. And so come across something in Paul that I disagree with and find challenging, especially his views about Sure. Yeah. And then you've got to ask, what are you finding challenging there? Is it actually what you're reading there or what you're thinking he's saying or the application that you're thinking or that you're being told is coming from that text? So, yeah. So texts that challenge us, um, either because they... They go against what we believe or want to believe, um, or they're just hard to figure out. <laughs> sometimes they are. Yeah. Okay. Great. Are there challenges? Definitely. Um, I think for me, it's something around needing an anchor or being able to see the entire journey of the Bible. Mm. Uh,
0: because oftentimes, when we study the Bible and you have scripture or dive into a certain piece of text, it's it's very out of context naturally, so you can't always you know view. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what are the events um and the thinking behind what if it's what I'm reading so yeah. now? It, it the end to end journey of Great. Seeing, um beginning to end as a, as it means to understand the specifics. Cool. good Any other
2: thoughts? Yep. So uh, just why it's hard, like in the sense of um why does this feel convoluted? Yeah. If God is, you know, reaching out to us. Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah. Sure. Yep. Yeah, I, I guess
2: think. one challenge for me is uh, kind of distinguishing between what's symbolic mm. language and what's mm. actually uh, literal yeah. language, and you know how how to yeah. interpret it yep. as symbolic or literal. Yeah,
1: thing. it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. Yep.
2: And um, for me, I think many times <coughs> I struggle. To know where
0: to go to. If I'm going through something, mm, mm. I want to type yes. to scripture. Yeah. For the answer or that that sense yes. of peace and say, Okay, it's okay. Yeah. I really I, I have no idea where to go to. Yeah. So normally what I do is
2: just Google.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah.
2: But I would like to know. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. All great questions. And I'm sure there are many more as well. And I'm not going to answer any of those. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, I will. uh, Some of those today. But also, I think one of the ways that we can really help each other... um, I mean, Adnan and I were talking about this earlier, um, uh, how often on days like this, uh, great conversations happen over lunch as people go away and they're like hey, me too, I struggle with that, and and often we can really help one another as well. So I've got some formal stuff I'm going to teach, but actually as we have conversations over lunch and over breaks and uh, come and ask me things, like hopefully we can help one another and you can say, hey, I found it helpful to use this resource, which has unlocked the Bible for me, and let's just share together. I'm sure we'll be able to learn together. Having said that we're not going to talk much about the Holy Spirit and prayer, I'm just going to pray and invite the Holy Spirit. So <laughs> um, Not so we do that bit and then we can move on, but because genuinely I think, We're not going to understand the word without the spirit. And so let's just invite the Holy Spirit uh, to be with us. So, Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence right now. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you. As the psalmist says, it is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the word. Thank you, God, that you chose to communicate to us, that you didn't just leave us clueless to navigate life alone, but you have given us this book. And when we see it as a challenge, uh, and it really is challenging, I pray that you'd actually help us to see it as a gift. I pray that you'd help us to get through some of those challenges today, to learn things together and from one another that would help us to know and understand and apply your word to our lives. The Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with us, that you would unlock the scriptures today. I pray that you'd keep things interesting, that you'd keep giving us insights. I pray that you'd help us to help one another. I pray that you'd help me to teach well in a way that helps people. I pray that anything I say that's unhelpful, that doesn't glorify you or that leads us down uh, unhelpful tracks, I pray would you just... Just guard us from that. But anything that is good, I pray that you'd burn it into our hearts, that we would remember it and have our lives changed by it. Would you be glorified through everything we discuss and the way in which we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Fantastic. Okay, just a few preliminary things before we get into the interpretive journey. And I think when we come to Scripture, each of us comes with a number of different things that we bring to it already. Hey there. Welcome. Uh, Yanis, isn't it? great welcome feel free to grab a uh, drink if you want and um, a table oh i should say actually um the biggest question that probably most of you are asking where are the toilets <laughs> um uh, not about the bible but very important uh, out this door ladies toilets on the right uh, men's toilets on the left There we go, done with the admin. When we come to scripture, um, I think many of us bring certain things, all of us bring certain things to it. We bring certain presuppositions and also pre-understanding with us. Um, Let me give you a few examples. All of us bring to scripture and to our reading of scripture pre-understanding, which can be good and can be bad. This is stuff that we uh, think we know, so we bring certain knowledge. We also bring knowledge in inverted commas, things that we think we know but may not actually be true or helpful. Uh, there may be a whole load of facts that we have picked up from sermons over the years, from uh, things that we have read, which have shaped our reading, and some of them may be true and some of them may not. Um, and it's not that we've been deliberately lied to, but maybe we've mis- be misunderstood or people have just passed things on and they've not known for themselves. Uh, little example uh, later we'll look at a passage in uh I think, mark ten isn't it and it talks about the um so I'll save you from an error right now actually it talks about the, uh, uh, the rich man and it says it's easier for a rich man no sorry it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle I've heard so many preachers go wow Jesus was talking about this gate in Jerusalem that was known as the eye of the needle it was very difficult for camels to get through preachers say it all the time it's just not true <laughs> no gate has ever existed I don't know where that came from but it's one of those things that it sounds great and so preachers say it and probably one preacher heard another preacher say it and so they say it as well and I've probably said things like that as well that I've heard but there's no historical evidence for, for that sort of thing now that doesn't actually negatively affect our reading of that passage too much it's just not true but it's one of those bits of knowledge that we bring to the text which may actually not be accurate or that helpful and there are all sorts of things like that as well Sometimes our understanding and our pre-understanding is shaped by various different things. Maybe personal circumstances, maybe art, uh, maybe church traditions. Um, For example, uh, the way we think about God as Father will be shaped by our own thoughts about what fatherhood is, our own experience of either being a father or having a father who was good or bad. We bring that understanding, good and bad, to our interpretation of that word. Or take the idea about riches and poverty, the way we read those texts will depend very much on what we think rich and poor mean and which category we think we fall into and I think many of us think oh I'm so poor whereas actually in global standards or standards compared to the Bible we may be in the other category and so our interpretation is shaped by our own experience. Art can affect us. A little example Um, close your eyes for a moment everyone now I want you to imagine Jonah in the belly of a whale get that picture in your mind can you see it? Open your eyes. How many of you saw a giant cavernous space with a bit of water and Jonah probably floating on a bit of wood or just sort of sitting there, plenty of space, maybe bobbing around in the water? Hands up. How many of, the, how many of you saw that sort of picture? Okay, a few of you, yeah. How many of you saw a tiny little cramped space in which he was like really bound up, nowhere to move, burning from stomach acid? <laughs> Yeah, okay, a couple of you, and I don't know what the rest of you were thinking with your eyes closed. So you're just, just like, oh great, I can close my eyes, wonderful. How many of you have seen the film Pinocchio? And how many of you picture that, that kind of scene. It's like this big thing, there's loads of space and he's floating around. Yeah, exactly. So in a weird kind of way, this children that's exactly what I think. I think of Jonah there. I think lots of space bobbing around in this sort of watery cavern. That's absolutely not what it's like, but we imagine it because we see it in art. That's a trivial example. But take something like heaven and hell. Very often our perceptions are shaped so much by art, medieval art, which depicts these very distinct places, one up, one down fire and very literal things. And that's the kind of stuff that comes to mind. Now, we have to go back to scripture and then say, well is that genuine or is that shaped by art in a way that takes us away from what scripture meant there are loads of examples like that Uh, take things like um, the cross we imagine that the cross looks like there's probably plenty here in this building there on the altar that's what we imagine a cross look like actually a roman cross probably looked nothing like that it wouldn't have had that top bit it would have been a t-shape now that doesn't change the way we think about the cross a great deal because it doesn't change much theologically but We picture things based on art that we see, and that can, in certain circumstances, skew the way we read passages. Uh, For good or for bad, uh, other examples would be church, um, whether you think the church is actually this, a building, or a body of people, whether we think the flesh literally means the body, or whether it's something else, a sinful side of us. These are all words that get shaped, and we come and we bring this pre-understanding with us to Scripture. We also bring certain presuppositions to Scripture, and these may be things like the existence of God. I hope that um, if you are a Christian, you come to the Bible with a presupposition that God exists. <laughs> but actually, then we may have loads of presuppositions about what this God is like. Is he good? Is he for us? Is he angry? Is he against us? Is he a personal being? Is he some abstract idea? And what we bring as our presuppositions to Scripture will shape the way that we read it. Our presuppositions about Scripture itself are really important. So Many of us will think, well, Scripture is a coherent thing. God was involved in writing. It. and so it's one book. Others of us will think well I don't expect for it to be unified because it's written by so many different people and the presuppositions we bring to it will affect the way we read it or whether we think the supernatural is possible. If we don't think that it is possible for God to do supernatural things, we'll write off a whole load of the Bible. Whereas if we think, yeah, okay, God is powerful and he intervenes in this world, then we'll be way more open to reading things as perhaps they were intended to be read. And often what we find is that pre-understanding can change every time we study a passage of scripture. When we read things and it challenges our pre-understanding, it's relatively easy to go, oh, okay, I got that wrong, I'll give that up. Presuppositions are way harder to shift because often we come Come to the Bible, and in fact any text and anything really, with these fixed ideas of what is true, and that then shapes our reading of it rather than our reading shaping our presuppositions. It's actually quite hard to shift presuppositions. And often, uh, there's this great quote from Kevin J. Van Hooser, often when we come to scripture with a set idea of presuppositions, it locks us in and we get proud because we stop engaging with scripture properly and genuinely. Uh, Van Hooser says this, pride encourages us to think that we have got the correct meaning before we have made the appropriate effort to recover it. Pride does not listen, it knows. And I know there are so many times where I come to scripture and I don't allow myself to be challenged or changed by it because I've already decided what I think and I've already thought that I'm going to disagree with this that's pride. And that doesn't help us to engage with scripture in a way that genuinely feeds our relationship with God. We need to have humility. And some people talk about this distinction between overstanding and understanding. I find it quite helpful. When we overstand with scripture, it's like we say, well, I put that down there, but my authority comes above this. I get to choose what is right. When we understand, it's like we put ourselves under scripture and we say, this is the authority and I have the humility to bow to whatever is in this book. And I would encourage you, understanding is way better. Than overstanding. And so, as we approach this day and as we approach reading scripture in general, uh, let's try and have an attitude of humility, knowing there'll be stuff in there that we're challenging, stuff that we won't necessarily like, but actually it's there for our good. Scripture is a gift, it's not there to trip us up. And when we approach it, we should be ready to be challenged and changed by it. Next page, let's begin this journey. And I'm going to rush through this bit quite quickly um, because I want to get to some exercises and I want to show you how this works Um, and probably some of you are already looking forward to the coffee break. So, But here is the interpretive journey. Um, I've given you a beautifully cheesy picture here of a journey, but it makes it easily memorable. This is adapted from a book which I would highly recommend uh, called Grasping God's Word by J. Scott Duval and J. Daniel Hayes. If you want like one workbook uh, or one sort of handbook that's going to help you to get to grips with all the Bible, there are two that I would recommend. It's this one, Grasping God's Word, which is quite practical. It's got lots of exercises in it, Um, It does feel a bit like a school text. Um, Or another one by uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And on the final page of the notes, actually, you do have some recommended resources, and those are on there. Uh, But those are two good general books that will help you, give you lots of tools for how to understand scripture in a way that's way more in-depth than this. But I've adapted um, this metaphor from them of the interpretive journey. And essentially. The journey that we're going to go on through today is is this. It comes in four steps. Step one is to grasp the text in their world. Ask, what does a particular text mean to its original audience? That's where we need to begin. Step two, which we'll come to in the second session, is then to measure the width of the river to cross. There is a huge gap between the, the audience of the original passages and us today. And sometimes that gap is enormous, sometimes it's quite small. And so we need to actually, before we try and apply it to our lives, we need to recognise, well, how big is the gap? How difficult is it? Step three is to cross the principalizing bridge, which as I was typing these notes, like every time I type that, which is hundreds of times through this document, there's like a little red line under it, so it's probably not a word, but, um, <laughs> but cross the principalizing bridge. What is the theological principle in this text that will help get from their world to our world? And we'll come to that in the next session. And then step four, grasp the text in our world. How should individual Christians today apply the theological principle? And just to introduce two big words for you, which you may have heard, uh, there are two terms, exegesis and hermeneutics. And exegesis is essentially step one. It's the, uh, the art or the science, welcome, um, of of understanding what a passage meant in its original context. Exegesis is about working out God's word to them, to the original hearers, and it involves careful study to discover the original intended meaning, asking the right questions to do with context and content, and we'll focus on that in this session. Steps two to four are then to do with the task of hermeneutics, which is broadly about God's word to us now actually the word hermeneutics um, can be broadly used for the whole of that journey uh, but more narrowly it has to do with seeking contemporary relevance of ancient text and good hermeneutics needs to be controlled by good exegesis as in you first need to start off by understanding what the Bible originally meant because if you ignore that and rush to what it means today will actually do damage to the text And one rule which we'll say plenty of times through this day is that a text cannot mean to us what it never meant originally. So you have to start with what it meant originally and then work out, well, what can that mean to us? If you rush to what can I get out of this without understanding it in its original context, we'll do all sorts of damage and come up with some pretty crazy interpretations. So this is broadly the journey that we are going to go on. And just to give you a heads up of how the day is going to work, this session we're going to do step one, Next session, we're going to do two and three. After lunch, we're going to take a bit of a detour and think particularly about the Old Testament uh, and expand step three a little bit. And then step four, we'll get to application at the end of the day. Uh, so if you do need to leave before the end of the day, you'll have no idea how to apply the Bible. Um, and I'll have opened up all these difficult things that we won't be able to land, but there we go. Um, okay, any questions on any of that so far? No. Okay, if I'm going too fast or too slowly (laughs) or it's boring, just let me know. Um, But let's begin with step one, grasping the text in their world. Uh, So if you turn to the next page, you'll find a picture of a little Monopoly house. And um, stage one is to ask, what does this text mean to its original hearers? And at this point, we really need to hold back and not race too quickly to application. To do so will do damage to the text. Uh, Text, as I've said, cannot mean to us what it never could have meant to its author or their readers. So the goal in stage one of approaching any text is to ask, what did it originally mean? And only when we have done that can we then responsibly work out what it might mean today. And the task of exegesis involves essentially two things. It's looking at the context and then looking at the content. Um, And they just helpfully both begin with C. Um, So let's begin with context. And when we're talking about the context, uh, I think we have two things in mind. Firstly, the historical context, uh, but then secondly, the literary context. So here are a load of questions. And and actually, I should say as well, the final page of the notes is a list of recommended resources. The one before is one page where I summarise basically the entire journey with all these questions on one page. So uh, when you're going back and you're trying to then work through text by yourself... uh, Um, That's the page to remember, um, because it will take you through this whole journey. But when we come to a text, we should ask ourselves historical context questions. Questions like, who? uh, Who is writing this letter or this book, whatever it happens to be? And who is the recipient or who are the recipients? I mean, it makes a huge amount of difference knowing whether this is written to an individual in a particular situation or actually a whole church. Uh, it makes a big difference knowing who wrote it. Did they have relationship with this church or this uh, person that they're writing to? What? What is written? Uh, How is it structured? What is the tone? Does it Feel like an angry book or a happy book? Is it encouraging? Is it condemning? Is there a reason for that? And how is it structured? Does it seem to be responding to something uh, like some of the letters do? You get a sense that there may have been another letter before it. Or does it feel a bit more abstract? Um, how is it being presented? Why? What was the purpose of it being written? Um, Sometimes we can interpret books completely wrong if we don't know why on earth it was actually written. If there's a particular reason in mind that inspired the writing of the letter, that may really help us to unlock some of the difficult verses, as we've looked at in previous... I mean, when we looked at Hebrews before, we spent quite a while thinking about the particular context, and suddenly these difficult passages made way more sense than they would have done otherwise. Where? Where was the author? Where was the recipient? Um, does the context the geographical context affected? When was it written? And what can we know about that period? If it was a period of intense persecution, that may help us to read the book a different way to if it's actually a peaceful time for example. Now these kind of questions are difficult um, but we can draw on internal and external evidence. Sometimes we can find stuff in the book itself that gives us these clues. Paul for example will talk about his relationship or when I was with you last in these different letters and think oh okay they know each other, they've seen each other face to face. But sometimes we need to go outside as well, we need to look at commentaries, we need to look at resources that will help give us some of the answers. Introductions in study Bibles for example. Again you'll find some recommendations on the back page it's totally fine in fact it can really help us to look at external sources and to learn from others historical context But then I think we need to also ask some questions about the literary context. What is the genre, what is the type of book we are reading? The Bible is not one book, actually it's a library of books and just like you wouldn't walk into an actual library or go to those shelves out there and expect to interpret every book in the same sort of way, the same is true of the Bible. You go into a library and you think well that's fiction, that's non-fiction, that's poetry, that's kids books or whatever it happens to be, film scripts, and you interpret them according to the genre, the way they were intended to be read. And I think we need to do the same with scripture. Uh, there are all sorts of things. There's history, there's poetry, there's apocalyptic literature, which we might come back to later, prophetic literature. And the way we approach it will differ. And again, uh, how to read the Bible for all it's worth has got chapters on each of the different types of literature. is really, really helpful. Uh, so I'll ask what is the genre what is the surrounding context what's the immediate context uh, you may need to read just the little section um, and then the whole book you may need to think about the author's whole work so when we're coming to something that Paul says and you think oh I'm not sure about that it's worth reading the rest of Paul's letters to find out if he says the same thing elsewhere or he makes it clearer in another context and of course then we need to read the whole bible as well which is a, a challenge and a lifelong journey but if you just pluck out one verse and you think oh I'm going to read that and then I'm just going to read the verses around it and now I've got it. Actually you may not have it at all because there may be other stuff in scripture that shares light on it which is why the interpretive journey is a lifelong journey to be honest. So we start off by asking questions about the context but then we need to move on to content and if you turn to the next page you see this suggestion and some of this is like you, might, you may just be like, this is really basic, this is really obvious. Um, but I think if we are to understand any text, we need to understand how it fits within the broader section that it is part of, and in fact, the whole book. So some basic principles. I would say that if you are choosing to study a book of the Bible, before you get into, like, verse 1, what does this mean? Read the whole thing. Try and read it in one sitting. Uh, That's harder for some books than others, so maybe choose a short book. (laughs) Um, But try and read it in one sitting, partly because that was often the way that it was intended, particularly the letters. They were intended to be read out to a whole church. So reading it in one go gives you an idea of where the beginning leads to and where you get to by the end, and then you can understand how things fit within the whole. Try and read the whole book. Then read paragraphs. Don't just get hung up on, well, I've got a big number two there, so that's chapter two, so that's where I start. Like, those were not inspired, (laughs) those numbers. They were put in many, many years later. They're helpful divisions, but sometimes just reading back a chapter or forward a chapter or even forward a paragraph is just a helpful way of understanding the context. And then ask questions like, how do these paragraphs fit together? Are they joined? Have they moved on to a different theme? And then, of course, read sentences within the context of their paragraphs and the letter as a whole. And here are a few things to look out for as you are reading sentences, paragraphs and discourses. Again, this is all summarised on the back, and I'm going to rush through this because I know it's boring reading lists, and I want to actually ground this in a text in a second. But when you're reading sentences, look out for things like repeated words, which give you a clue as to what the main theme may be. Look out for contrasts and comparisons. Sometimes words come uh, next to each other, and you've got to ask, are they put together because the author wants us to see these the same way or because they illustrate a difference. Look for lists and then ask yourself, is there anything important about the order of this list? Sometimes you get lists, for example, spiritual gifts, and it seems that one of them is always in the same place or sometimes they change the order of the list. Ask yourself, why might that be? Of course, it might just be accident, but there may well be a reason. At least ask yourself the question. Cause and effect uh, if the author says, this thing leads to this or this happened because of this figures of speech, um, conjunctions, but, and, for, therefore. Um, uh, something one of my tutors always told me, and I, asked, I just remember every time I read scripture, ask what the therefore is there for. I mean, it's simple, but it sticks in my head. Whenever you come across a therefore, ask, what's the therefore there for? Well, it's not there because he just fancied using the word therefore. It's because it shows that something has led to another point. This is a conclusion of something that came before. And paying attention to those little words, so... For example, these sorts of things, because, help you to see how the different blocks all fit together. Look for verbs, look for pronouns, and now I'm sounding like an English tutor, so let's move on. Things to look for in paragraphs, uh, general and specific details. Sometimes you read a book and it's like really vague and abstract and suddenly it's really detailed and you think, why? Why get a head up on this point? There may well be a reason, we'll come to some examples later. Questions and answers. Um, Sometimes rhetorical questions. Sometimes you get a sense that Paul is answering a question and you think, who's asking that question? Did you just make up that question? Well, no, it may actually have come from a letter that was previously written. Try and identify those. Dialogue, uh, purpose statements, uh, means by which things are accomplished. So, again, that's similar to cause and effect. Um, Conditions, um, if... Words, for example, um, which suggest that something is dependent on something else. Um, Actions or roles of people or of God. Emotional terms. Pay attention to emotional terms. Things to look for in discourses for blocks of scripture. Connections between paragraphs and episodes that give you an idea of why they're tied together. Story shifts. So if you're reading a bit of narrative and you think, hang on, we were just doing this story and now you're doing this story. Why? Um, Ask yourself why. It may be that they're setting you up for a particular Um, comparison as we'll come to later Uh, juxtaposition and interchange so again if they change tack why ask yourself why and uh, chiasm which is a geeky hebrew thing that sometimes you'll find people talk about in commentaries where um, lots particularly in the old testament sometimes in the letters as well and and in the god in fact in all of scripture uh, they often do this thing where if you analyze it um, basically by lines it will kind of go A, B, C, C, B, A, or something like that, and the author has started the paragraph with something very similar to the final line, and they kind of work in, and they sort of mirror because they want to make a particular point. And you hear people just talk about these all the time in the Psalms in particular. They're like, oh, here's a chiasm. You think, well, great book. How does it help me? (laughs) Well, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just a poetic thing. But when you look and you see a structure and you think, oh, you've begun and ended in the same way, it might be because they want to draw you on a journey where you start with a statement and by the end, you read the statement in a different light because it's taken you through a journey. Just things to look out for. Um, And then ask yourself these two questions. What is the author saying? As in, what is the content of this paragraph? And why is he saying it? Why is he saying it in this way? And why is he saying it at this point in his argument? And I think, and we're going to ground this in a text in just a second, um, but I think when you are trying to do exegesis, when you're going through, and I literally, when I'm preaching, for example, I print out the passage and I print out the verses either side and I go through with a red pen and I underline repeated words. And I, I do this pretty much every time I'm coming to, particularly when I'm preaching, and because... I know it feels a bit torturous, but it really helps to unlock things. And at the end of it, I want to be able to basically summarise that passage in a sentence. And in Grasping God's Word, it suggests do it in the past tense. So, for example, you may go through and you highlight all the words and you look at it and you try and work everything out. And then at the end, you need to be able to say, okay, what this passage has taught me is Paul encouraged the Ephesians to... And that's it. You don't need to go any further than that. You don't need to go, therefore, well, I should. That's a later stage of the journey. Simply get to the point where you summarise what has happened in that text. <coughs> okay, that was a lot of just lists and <laughs> very dull details. Did that make sense? Yeah. Any questions about any of that before I try and ground it in a passage? No. No. Great. I'm going to trust that that's because you don't have questions rather than that you've just fallen asleep. But um, if you have fallen asleep, now's the time to wake up and open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Yeah, there are Bibles on the table. Um, feel free to use those if you like. Mm. Let me pass it What I want to do here, um, and like I say, I know this feels maybe a bit detailed, maybe a bit like an academic exercise, um, but what I want to do is show you in a fairly simple text right now um, how I might go about doing this. And of course, talking out loud is slightly strange, because if I were sitting there with a, <laughs> you know, this uh, printed out in front of me, I'd just be drawing things, and I don't think I often articulate this out loud. So this may seem a bit strange, but essentially what I want to do is show you the kind of journey I would go on in trying to work out what a text means. And we're actually going to cover quite a bit of text from chapters 1 to uh, 317 uh, because I want to show you how you think about the flow of a detail. And this is quite an easy text compared to some of the ones we'll get to later, um, but I think it illustrates the point relatively well. So you may want to have the passage open. Um, And we'll read little bits, uh, and then I'll take you through the journey. I've basically filled in the the notes for you. Um, But if we start with chapter 1. In fact, could someone read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17 in the Greek? No, I'm kidding. Go for it. Um, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters,
0: in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power.
1: Fantastic. So... If I were approaching this text, and we're going to go and read the rest of chapter 2 and 3 as well, um, probably what I would do first of all, I'd read 1 Corinthians in one go, which takes some time, put it in your diary, set aside time to read it all in one go, as it would originally have been read. I would then also be reading commentaries. I'd read an introduction, and I would try and grasp things like who Paul... Uh, thought he was writing to, why he was writing, where he was writing from, um, when it was written. um, And and I would think, uh, as as I would do that, and it would take quite a long time, but it would be helpful, I would find all sorts of things out about the Corinthians and about the purpose of this letter. I'd also find that um, this letter seems to be a response to other letters the Corinthians had written to Paul, and that it's divided up into certain sections, and so I'd know that the sections are divided here, here and here. And I would glean all of this from reading commentaries or reading introductions. But actually, just reading the text itself, even without going to any of those other sources, you can learn all sorts of different things. So in this passage, it seems like there's been some kind of response. uh, Verse 11, my brother, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. So immediately, you know, people have come to Paul from Chloe. We don't know who Chloe is, but some some people have come from that household and said something is going on, there seem to be some quarrels. So Paul is not just writing a random letter, hey how are you doing? Like He knows there's a reason, there are quarrels, he's heard this from someone, someone has sent people to him because they think Paul needs to do something about this, this is getting to a dangerous point. And in this passage we don't necessarily know exactly what all the quarrels were but there's somehow about division, uh, division around particular leaders, so Paul asks all these rhetorical questions. I mean, if you were to tot up the number of rhetorical questions in that passage it's a lot. And some of them are quite striking as well. Uh, is Christ divided? Clearly not. Was Paul crucified for you? Clearly not, or we wouldn't be writing this letter. Like they they're striking questions because he wants to poke them a little bit he wants to get them thinking he wants them to engage with the nature of their quarrel so I'm noticing all these things as I'm going through probably underlining them going wow loads of rhetorical questions I wonder what's going on here Um, there also may be some bad blood between the church and Paul itself you kind of get the sense that Paul's not very happy there's some kind of tension there it's worth noticing that and then he ends with this about wisdom and eloquence Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not with words of human wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power and you're like where did that come from I don't know if any of you found that but when I'm reading that through that verse you just think that's a bit odd that's not what we were talking about one moment ago so I don't know the answer to that put a pin in it raise it as a question think why is he talking about eloquence then move on to the next verses and suddenly he's talking all about wisdom and it feels, really, we're not going to read all of it, so you may want to look through as we talk it through, but it feels like Paul's just going on a bit of a tangent. He's talking about quarrelling, and then he said, I didn't come with eloquence. Let me tell you a bit about eloquence. You think, why, Paul? Like, let's go back to the quarrelling. Does he have a reason for it? I'm going to assume he does, but I don't quite know what it is yet. So he goes on and he starts talking about eloquence. And then he chooses to focus on the gospel. Why is he focusing on the gospel? Well, I think the reason is that the gospel is the one thing that should unite everybody. So he goes on, he talks about uh, all these people looking for different signs, looking for wisdom. um, But then he's talking about the cross. He's talking about Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he is setting up this distinction, this division. He's saying there are all sorts of differences, differences, approaches, but one thing should unite us. It is the gospel. And then he makes all these contrasts. And again, if I were going through this with a red pen, I would notice he seems to be talking about wisdom. He seems to be talking about foolishness. He seems to be talking about power and weakness and drawing all these contrasts. Again, I don't quite know why he's doing it, but I'd note it, put a pin in it. He also seems to be drawing contrasts between God and humanity. Again, not quite sure why. Put a pin in it, note it, see if we get an answer by the end of the passage. You with me? Great. Great. Let's see if you are with me. So the next section, mm-hmm. verses 26 to 31. Uh, would someone read those verses out for me? And uh, now I want one of you to, or some of you, to spot things about this passage. Rowan, would you mind reading? Oh, sorry, was there someone? Yeah, Stephanie, you go for it. You got away with it, Rowan. <laughs> Tell me some things that stand out to you from these verses. (coughs) Obviously, you've got some answers on the bit of paper. So, you know, if you just read those out, I'm (laughs) going to (laughs) know. He does a lot of comparing wise to foolish, Mm. or to less than. Yeah. 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 Loads of comparisons again. Yeah. The um, the repetition of not many of you and God change. Hmm. Hmm. Great. Yeah, so repetition of uh, not many of you, but God chose. So it seems to be emphasising God's choice here. Um, just uh, going back to the comparison thing. So there's comparison of wise and foolish and weak and strong, which was in those previous verses as well, but also seems to be a comparison between God and humanity, God's wisdom, our wisdom, etc., etc. Let's start with the very first word of the very first verse. What is it? Brothers, okay. Does that tell us anything? No, okay. Let's <laughs> I'll give you a clue, it does. <laughs> well, brothers
0: would be um, more
1: personal. Yeah, so mm-hmm. a personal relationship between... Yeah. Okay, great. So, so someone writes me a letter, and, uh, or I hear news that there's division, and people are angry, and people are dividing, and maybe people don't like me very much. I'm probably going to write back and want to put them in their place. What does Paul do? He says... So he appeals to them on the basis of relationship, which is interesting. I, d- I don't think it's just a general word. I mean, it is a fairly regular word. But he could have chosen any other... He could have said evil Corinthians or, <laughs> or divided people. Brothers, he wants to remind them that we are family. Yeah. There's a personal appeal there. And it should be brothers and sisters. It's, it's a general term. So he's not just writing to men. Oh, this um, version says brothers and sisters. Yours says... Yeah, yeah. Um, some of them do... Um, which is a helpful clarification, yeah. Does it feel gentle, this paragraph? Does it feel harsh? Does it feel challenging? It's a one man whisper of challenging? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah, it feels challenging. This it's provocative. I mean he's using quite stark language. Yeah. Uh, reading this bit to this point like he seems to have been quite negative about wisdom so one of the questions i had earlier was like why is he talking about wisdom and actually he seems to be quite negative about wisdom but then he says christ became wisdom so he can't be totally negative about wisdom so that question i had earlier like what what's the deal with wisdom why is he so anti wisdom actually he can't be anti wisdom because christ became wisdom and he's clearly not anti christ is he so um, so uh, there must be something else going on and then i look at the distinction and i see oh he's not anti wisdom because he talks about God's wisdom but there's something wrong with human wisdom in contrast to God's wisdom so this again gives me an idea about how he is developing this theme so if I were to sum up um, and I've done these at the top of each of these boxes if I were to sum up these three sections so far I'd say that verses 10 to 17 essentially say well don't be divided around leaders Verses 8 to 25 shows that the gospel stands in contradiction to wisdom, uh, with questions about what wisdom is, and then 26 to 31 says that God's choice of people stands in contradiction to human wisdom, and I think these provocative challenges um, are essentially to start getting the Corinthians to think, well, whose side am I on here? Am I making the same choices as God, or am I actually standing in opposition to God? So in a few paragraphs, he's taken them on a bit of a journey. And what felt like a a slight tangent, the kind of wisdom bit, is actually it's all foundations for the way he's building his argument. Do you see this? Now notice there's nothing in this point that has required us to go and get a commentary, go and get the Greek, go and phone a theologian, anything like that. We've done it all from the text, yeah? So next bit, someone read to me. Rowan, would you read to me? <laughs> I came back to you. Um, <laughs> chapter two, verses. I don't know why I think that reading scripture is <laughs> is like a, some kind of curse. I don't know. No, it's it's your privilege now, Rowan, to read to me, um, to us. Uh, chapter two, verses one to five. Thank you. You're welcome.
2: Um, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power.
1: Okay, um, mine opens slightly differently to that, but uh, can you read the first, I mean, the first couple of words? Again? Oh,
2: wait. and so it was.
1: Okay, stop there. Yeah. What do you think about those words? And so it was?
0: He's
1: Great. So there's some kind of link between these previous verses and what he's about to say. And what he then goes on to say is the thing that I didn't understand why he said in verse 17 so he starts talking about his own preaching and wisdom and eloquence and I'm like, where did that come from Paul and then he goes on a bit of a tangent and then he comes back and he says and so it was and then he gets to the bit I didn't come to you with wisdom and eloquence you think oh there was a reason Paul you're not insane like you, you, you know what you're doing here writing this letter Like there's a link here between this big theme about God's choice and God's wisdom and the way that Paul came and preached and we get that by and so it was a clue that they are linked. Again, you get the word brothers, uh, which tells us, again, he's still appealing to him, uh, to these people on the basis of relationship. I think Paul is now saying that his own preaching, which maybe was nothing by the world's standards, not the greatest preaching, certainly not up to my standards. I don't know. Um, uh, that was a joke, but <laughs> thank you for going with it. I, I feel encouraged that you didn't think it was a joke. That's good. Um, like He's saying that his preaching is not up to uh, the standards that the Corinthians want. But maybe actually there's an issue here because we've already seen that God's choice is different to human choices and so maybe the measure that they are using is unhelpful um, here. And so Paul's own preaching illustrates this strange divine contradiction that God chooses those that the world might not choose. Yeah, he is a living example of this theological point. You with me? So then he goes back to the beginning, like the very foundation of their faith. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Essentially, it's going back to the very foundations of their faith. You didn't come to faith because of wisdom. You came to faith because of the, the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so now, why are you fussing so much about wisdom as if that's the main thing, when that was never the foundation of your faith anyway? It's to do with the Spirit's power. Yeah, Shannon, do you have a... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, um, so yes, that takes you back to like we said earlier. I don't know why they're dividing and saying I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Well, maybe one of the reasons was because they were like, Apollos is a better preacher than Paul. I follow him. Or I prefer Cephas. Is I don't know song choice when he leads worship. I don't know what it is, but maybe this gives us a clue that they're measuring things wrongly and then therefore dividing around leaders as a result. Great. Verses 6 to 16. Um, Would someone read these verses out for us?
2: We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord's glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit.
1: If you were to pick one word that comes up again and again and again in this verse, what would it be? Spirit. Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting, isn't it? How did he end the last paragraph? I didn't speak with wise and persuasive words, but demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So the foundation of their faith was the Spirit. And suddenly, he can't stop speaking about the Spirit. Why is this? He's gone to the very foundation. This is how you became Christians. This is everything that you, you uh, your whole lives, your faith is built upon. And then he starts talking about the spirit again and again and again. I mean, notice at verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. So having said, I didn't come to you with wise and eloquent words. He says, but we do actually speak wisdom. Um, it's just, actually, he's made a distinction now between God's wisdom and human wisdom. So I remember once when I started preaching and someone told me that my preaching was too in-depth and I um uh and and I shouldn't well actually you know I I was doing apologetics and they said you don't need apologetics and your wisdom is too in-depth sorry your teaching is too in-depth um don't you remember Paul said we don't speak with wisdom so you shouldn't try and make it too complex you shouldn't try and go too deep you should just speak simply and allow the spirit's power to come I don't think that's actually what he's saying. And for, for a while, I was like, oh, man, actually, he created a Bible verse. I mean, he must be right. Um, but when you go back and you see, Paul's not anti-wisdom. He says, we do, however, speak of wisdom. It's just not human wisdom. It's God's wisdom. So wisdom is fine, so long as it's not wisdom that divides based on the wrong things. We do speak wisdom. And it's accompanied by the Spirit's power. And so then he goes on and he talks about the Spirit. And he says, you know, we've... Uh, the Spirit searches all things. Uh, the Spirit is revealed to the, reveals things to those who have the Spirit. And we have the Spirit. And so again, he's saying to all of you, you all have the Spirit. He's unifying All these people together, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Um, And he then says, the spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. And that's interesting to me, because you've started the passage by talking about these people making distinctions, and saying, I follow this person, I follow this person, I follow this person. And they seem to be making judgments, they seem to be making decisions. And he says, actually, the person with the Spirit does those things, but he still at the same time wants to criticise the judgments they have made. So it's okay to be discerning, it's just that they're doing it the wrong way. And later on, when you get into the book, you find that that sort of language of discernment and judgment comes up again and again and again, and we'll get to a passage that illustrates that. But it's like Paul is sowing the seeds for it here. And again, you put a pin on it, you think, I don't know why he's doing that, when you get to later chapters, you find that actually he appeals to this sense of the spirit uh, that we have to encourage them to make wise judgments about things. So he's setting the seeds for what is going to come through later in the book. Is it quite enough that, almost the way he wrote
2: it, it's still saying, I'm going to come to you with I mean, the way it's all written is quite elegant. It's obviously very well thought out. Yeah. And A is has been
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah well so that's an interesting question isn't it? Is he being sarcastic here, or is he not and i think um
2: sorry
1: yeah well yes, yes, partly, i mean the fact that yeah, he was a very wise man yeah so so it makes you wonder what they were lacking from Paul's <laughs> preaching. Because um, I, I read Paul and I'm like, you're pretty wise. So what was it they were looking for? And it may be that they were looking for good oratory and maybe he didn't have that, though he could write a pretty it's good too letter. Deep they the Sorry? Was
0: too deep they the
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe that's it, yes. Or he didn't have enough Lord of the Rings quotes or something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is an irony in that, isn't there? And I think that's intentional because he is communicating the right wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God, not the wisdom based on... False, you know, assumptions. And when I said sarcasm, um, and you sort of backtracked a little bit. No, sarcasm is a good thing to look out for. And um, whenever people say, "Oh, I hate British humour; it's too sarcastic," I'm like, "You need to read the Bible. <laughs> I mean, read the prophets, read Ezekiel, or read um, Paul in two Corinthians, like most sarcastic letters." brilliant and it justifies my sense of humour which is great but but he is sarcastic at points um, because he really wants to help people to see the stupidity of their position so do look out for sarcasm I probably didn't put that in the notes but it's a, a key thing to look out for um okay let's keep going through this um and we'll pick up the pace a little bit so uh, chapter three verses one to four again let me just note none of us have turned to the Greek none of us have got out a commentary we've got it all from in here yeah we got it all from this passage. Chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, could, uh, sorry, could someone read verses 1 to 4?
0: One says
1: I follow Paul and another I follow Apollo's. Are you not being be, be merely human? Fantastic. So um Again, addresses them as brothers. There seems to be a link. um, So then uh, our translations would be slightly different than this. Um, In fact, even the translation I used when I was preparing my notes is slightly different to this one, which is confusing me a bit. But um, uh, there seems to be a link again. um, And having just talked about the spirit, having just talked about the fact that all these people have the spirit and therefore should be able to discern things, he said, I can't, can't address you as spiritual. Um, And there's an interplay, I think, between those who have the spirit and spiritual, and it seems like spiritual may be a technical term, and the Corinthians thought of themselves as very spiritual people and looked down on those who were not very spiritual. And you say, well, you claim to be this, and of course you do have the spirit, but I can't address you like spirit. People, I can't address you like spiritual people. I have to address you like kids. And he's being a little bit pejorative in his um, in the way he addresses them. He's like, "I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not yet ready for it." So you think, indeed, you're not yet ready. <laughs> so these people think, "Man, I'm, i we are great. We get to cast judgment on other people." He's like, "No, you're babies, <laughs> and I need to address you like that because you're thinking of yourselves as greater than you are." He talks about them being worldly, about them being children, about them being mere humans. He's um, He's using these challenging words to help them feel the force of their actions and lots of rhetorical questions again. Um, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Um, because he wants them to see the foolishness of what they're doing. Okay, let's move on to the next verses five to nine. Oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, he's definitely wanting them to feel that sense, that you're claiming to be these things and you do have the spirit. Why the heck are you not acting like it? Yeah, and I can't address you like these people that you were actually meant to be or are claiming to be. Yeah, definitely. Can someone read verses 5 to 9? Great. So so he's just taken them on this negative journey about their own actions, uh, and then he said, essentially, um, if you have the spirit, why are you acting like those you don't? And he's showing... Basically, at the end of verse 4, he takes them right back to the divisions that we started the whole passage with. And he's saying, why are you acting as immature people? And the fact that he mentions, again, wisdom and eloquence shows that he's he's still got this thing at hand. They're passionate about mature things, but actually too immature to enjoy them. And then he makes this contrast between, um, with loads of rhetorical questions again, between men, people, and God. And it's quite stark. And essentially, he's saying, like, leaders are nothing. (laughs) Leaders are... Not like anything compared to God. So he contrasts him and Apollos and God. And he uses words like we and you and God because he's wanting to draw these distinctions, essentially to say, don't quarrel over leaders. You're being really immature here. They are servants. We are servants. We have different roles, but one cause. And so he talks about planting and watering. These are all important things, but ultimately... We are God's fellow workers. We belong to him, and you are God's field. God's building. You're like, hang on. <laughs> God's field or God's building? Which is it? Why have you suddenly started talking about a building? Verses 10 to 15. Someone read these.
0: By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one of you should build with care the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only is one escaping through the flames.
1: Okay. Does this feel like a light passage? A heavy yeah. passage? <laughs> Very heavy. Yeah, the heaviest yet. Now, imagine if Paul had started this letter. Chloe's household have told us there are some problems. You're going to get burnt up like, like hay and straw. People would be like, oh, Yeah, I already didn't like you, Paul, and now I'm justified in that. What he's done is he's taken them on this journey, showing them the foolishness so that you It's good that you're searching wisdom. Actually, you're searching for the wrong type of wisdom. Of course, you're filled with the Spirit. Um, Let me illustrate this through my own preaching, that God's choice is different to our choices. Wisdom is good. Christ became wisdom. He's drawing them on the side. Brothers, sisters, he's drawing them in. And then he says to them, I want to teach you like your spiritual people, but actually, you're too immature. You're still on the milk when you you want the food, but I can't give you anything more than milk because you're not ready for it. And so he's, through rhetorical questions and taking them on a journey, he gets them to the point where they're like, okay, I kind of accept this, and now he's like, and this is the consequence, if you carry on like this, this is going to happen, and you uses these stark warning words, having taken them on this journey, and there seems to be the shift from field to temple, so from agriculture to architecture, and um, it seems a bit random, but actually I think probably the reason is that if you read through scripture, the house of God, the temple, it's always a building, so I think he wants to kind of evoke that idea of the temple, and um And so clearly, it seems here that he is um, wanting to give warnings about the way that they are building the church, essentially. So he's saying, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert believer, someone else is building on it. Um, And he seems to be talking, I think, about the church here. Now, the interesting thing is that the whole thing so far really has been about the church, not about individuals. But this verse is so often plucked out and used to apply to individuals. So... So many times you hear people talk about um, this as if it's talking about the security of an individual person's salvation. So they say, how are you building your life? Uh, Once saved, always saved. So there's this debate, you know, have I been saved? Um, Once I've been saved, can I lose my salvation? And this verse often gets pulled up in that conversation. Now, I'm not saying it has nothing to say about that, but I'd say that actually it seems to be more about the church right the way through so chances are this is more about the way that you're building a church the body of Christ the uh, the temple the building and he's encouraging us to build the church wisely not poorly and one of the reasons I think that is because then the next verse Verse 16 says this Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. And actually it doesn't come across quite so clearly in the English, but this is all plural. It's like you together are the temple you as this body are the temple of God now later on in chapter six he does actually talk about every individual Christian being a temple of the Holy Spirit so it's legitimate to get to that idea that I am a temple of the Holy Spirit but here he seems to be appealing to them you yourselves together are as a body the temple of the Holy Spirit And so again, it makes them think, wow, how are we building the church? And if you're clearly dividing the church into a group of people who are like, well, I'm the Apollos quarter of the church, I'm the Cephas quarter of the church, you're dividing the body of Christ. And he said earlier, can Christ be divided? Clearly not. So he's helping them to see the the real effects of what they are doing through rhetorical questions, through warnings. And he's saying, don't divide the church up. Build the church wisely, not poorly. The church is God's temple, and there are serious consequences for destroying it. And again, in those final few verses, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, that God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. And he's just emphasizing the possession. God owns you. You belong to him. So why are you judging by human standards rather than Godly standards. So, to summarize all of that, essentially I would say that there is this specific issue that has prompted the writing of this letter, and it's the division around leaders in the name of wisdom. And so these people are, in the name of wisdom, dividing and following particular leaders over others. And it shows that they've actually failed to understand the gospel at the root of it, the very gospel that they experienced. And Paul is essentially saying, You claim to have the spirit, but you're living as though you don't. And if you continue to quarrel like this, you will essentially be building a house of straw and damaging God's temple. And there are consequences for that. You will be punished for it. And he's taken them on this journey across three chapters in loads of different ways, all to emphasise this point in a way that really should make the Corinthians sit up and take notice and be ready for the rest of what he says in the letter. Does that kind of make sense? We haven't delved into the Greek we haven't got a commentary, we haven't had a theologian on speed dial, we've done it all from the passage, just by asking lots of questions. Now, I don't know how that feels to you, does it feel like we've spent a long time on a short passage, or does that feel like we've got through a long section in a short time? I don't know, um, but actually, this is exactly the kind of way that if we start doing this with the very text that we, you know, we may have started with chapter 3 verses 15 to 17, or something like that, and that's your verse for the day that you've read on your Bible app or something or other and you can look at it and get confused about it but then if you back up and you start looking at that you can see the whole flow of the argument, you can notice repetition you can notice questions raised here that get answered here and we get a more rich understanding as a result Does that make sense?
0: Thank you for listening For more information or for further podcasts and downloads please visit Christchurchlondon.org